I uh, suspect that uh, God smiled as we were reading his word. Uh, Today is a long passage, and I'm not going to go through and pick every part of it apart and share some thoughts with you. I just want to make a a couple of points along the way. You know, uh, just a little story about my family. My parents uh, went uh, to be with the Lord a little over a decade ago. And prior to that, they moved out of their home and moved into an assisted uh, facility where they actually lived a couple of years. And on one of my frequent visits down to see them, I uh, put them in my car and uh, took them on a little uh, travel experience around the places where we have lived uh, down in San Diego County. And we went by my little league field, and I saw that, and it was still there, and games were still being played there. Went by my elementary and junior high school, passed by a couple of modest homes in which we lived, and there was a tremendous amount of just uh, nostalgic remembrance as we uh, drove along. It was uh, an enjoyable experience. But it was also somewhat sobering as we considered the brevity of life. You know, I'm a, I myself am long past that stage of life where I believe in that adolescent illusion to mortality or not immortality. Uh, you know, when you cup your hands and drink water from your cupped hands, you have to drink the water fairly quickly because even the tightest of uh, the hands, even as tight as they could possibly be, you still have to drink the water in a hurry, otherwise it's going to fall out. And uh, it's a reminder to me that the water in our hands is similar to life itself. Uh, The older we get, the more we realize that that water is our life, and we better take stock on how we live this three score and 10 or beyond while we're here on earth. Now, as uh, you noticed, our text today was quite long, but uh, I'm going to just uh, summarize it a little bit by pointing out two uh, important details, two principles that are extremely closely related there, and uh, they're in your outline. So you'll be able to know where I'm coming from a little bit at a time. Uh, let me first uh, give you something of the chronological context, because when in the book of John, a lot of things happen each and every day, and uh, the events that we're going to be talking to uh, about today uh, actually are only a day or so beyond the events we've been talking to uh, as we've journeyed our way through this book of John. And so, uh, you know, it was the day before that he actually fed the multitude from a little boy's lunch, uh, fed maybe 15, 20,000 people in total, 5,000 men are counted in the Bible. But then the people turned and they wanted to make Jesus a political king. I mean, after all, if we had a fellow that could do, a king that can do miracles like that, and he was our king, he can relieve us of the Roman oppression in which we've suffered under for such a long period of time. But Jesus, however, was not going to have any part of that. He came as a spiritual king. 
in order to save us from sin. And so he dismissed the crowd because he simply didn't want the disciples to get caught up in the contagion of, yeah, let's make Jesus a political king because that's not why he came. So he had his disciples, and again, we looked at this, but he had them get into the boat and go from the east side of the Sea of Galilee over to the west side to the coastal little village over there called Capernaum. But we remember that uh, as they were rowing, uh, the storm came upon the sea and turned the calm waters of the Galilean Sea into a wet fury. And the disciples kept rowing, but they were in danger of losing their life. And then we remember how Jesus came walking on the water, and uh, he got into the boat, and there is no drowning with the Savior aboard. And so he, he is the one that uh, is just the main character in each of these marvelous stories, and it's, it's trying to continue to get across just who this Christ really is. Uh, now, the multitude itself uh, was not, uh, you know, that had been fed a day earlier, wasn't very interested in giving up their instant welfare program. And so they made their way to Capernaum to find Jesus. They get to Capernaum and they say, Jesus, when did you get here? And Jesus, you know, just carved right through their hypocrisy and says, you know, you're not really that interested in me, but you're really interested in what I can give you. And then he says, don't worry so much about your physical life. Don't worry about that. Concentrate on the eternal life. You need to believe in the one whom the Father sent, and that's mainly me. And they said, well, can you show us a sign? After all, Moses, and we read about this, got the, the manna from, from heaven itself and gave it to his people out in the wilderness 1,500 years earlier. And uh, Jesus looked at him and said, you know, uh, Moses didn't give the manna. God gave the manna, uh, you know, and uh, that's what they were after. They were after what, what, God, what Jesus could give them. And Jesus says that physical manna that you did get from God, but I am the true bread of life continually getting across, trying to convince and help the people understand who he was. I am the true bread of life itself. Uh, and uh, that life that I'm giving is eternal. Now, let me read just a couple of verses here. It says, they came to him, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who, will, who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. And again, this brings us to our first major point here, and that Jesus is claiming that he is the bread. And really, this is not so much of a discussion. Uh, let, me, let me backtrack for just a moment. There's a lot of discussion today about left brain types and right brain types. And I think we kind of understand it. You know, it's a little bit fuzzy at times, and there's crossovers. But left brain types are... Uh, prominently are tilt towards the more factual and analytical. Those who are right brain types tilt towards those to that which is a little bit more mystical, maybe a little bit more intuitive, knowing that we're all crossing over a little bit. But, there, you know, there's people that think in different ways. 
to a measurable degree, what we've done is we've separated the world's religions into those two categories of intuitive and uh, factual and so forth. Western religions, for instance, like Judaism or Islam, are more left-brain types. They, they without you know, having a little mystical elements, but they're predominantly factual. Uh, Eastern religions, like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, while not being without intellectual elements, uh, lean to the more mystical or right brain type things. Christianity, however, uh, can't be placed into either one of those categories. Christianity is full of information and, yes, it also, and yet, it also speaks to the inner life. So it contains elements of both. It's radically personal, and yet it also includes children, interestingly enough. Western and Eastern religions, when you begin to think about it, to a good measure, exclude children. See, a child can't be an intellectual. A child can't be a mystic. But a child like what we have over there or a teenager like what we have over there, uh, they can understand a person. Uh, they can welcome a friend. They can submit to a king. Now, the gods of other religions, if you'll allow me to assume their existence for just a moment here, are too high. They're too remote to be known personally. The Muslim god of Allah never avails himself to anybody. But Christianity has a God that cried, that suffered, and experienced joy as well. Now think of it in terms of a marriage, okay? A lot of married people in here today. If your marriage is a personal relationship predominantly, then it's growing. There's understanding. There's interchange. There's friendship. There's support. There's affection. There's the bearing of burdens. But if your marriage is predominantly a business contract or a business partnership, then chances are it's heading in the other direction. It's dying. Let me transfer this to a little bit of the spiritual realm. You know, some start out not quite understanding God, not understanding who God is, who Jesus is. All they know is that they've learned that he's all-powerful, that he exists, and that he helps us. And so they get into uh, Christianity, if you please, on something of a business-type relationship. Uh, in other words, they, they make a deal with God. And all of a sudden, when God doesn't come through and rescue them from some particular hardship or disease or something that's really, really difficult, they say, God, what's the issue here? We've got a partnership. You're not really coming through for me. You know, you know, you need to get with it. Otherwise, I'm not even going to believe you exist. Uh, you know, we just uh, wonder what in the world is going on. And then something happens that triggers oftentimes a little bit of a change. We quit making demands. We understand God. We understand that he has an overall purpose. We understand that he has our best at, at his own heart and wants what's best for us. So we have to challenge him. 
And, and we can actually submit to a higher purpose when things aren't particularly going well in our own life. Say, God, you know what's happening. You're here with me. You never leave or forsake. And therefore, I'm going to track with you and not desert you, not saying you don't exist and not saying you don't even have my best interests at heart because I know that you do. Uh, and Christianity, however, moves from that that business type thing to true, true Christianity. He says in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats the bread, he will live forever. And it, the bread which I will give for life of this world is my flesh. Now we learn from this that uh, the bread of heaven is not just a person, but a broken person. And it's really a fitting analogy. You know, it's interesting to reflect on just the making of bread. I don't know much about making bread, but I do remember my wife used to make a lot of bread uh, in our home. And you first have to, to cut the grain, and then you have to, to bruise the grain and let it separate. Okay. Let it separate uh, from the, for, you know, the wheat would separate from the chaff, and then you could bake it. So you cut it, you bruise it, and then you bake it. And all of these activities are somewhat suggestive of, of what the Lord does in you and me. Think about what the psalmist says in Psalm 88. Thy fierce wrath goes over me and has cut me off. Isaiah 53, he was bruised for our iniquities. And so what better figure than baking for enduring the white-hot wrath of a holy God in the atoning work of Christ on the cross? The bread had to be broken in order to help me. It's not going to nourish me if all I do is smell the bread. And what I've done and what you've done, and we do it several times in the course of a lifetime, often in the course of a lifetime, we hijack our own life for a while and, uh, you know, from the Creator, and then we realize that Jesus is the one who took the punishment for our act of rebellion. Now, if I come to God and say, God, you know, I would really like for you to make me feel better today. Uh, that won't work. But if I come and say, Lord, I've rebelled against you, uh, and I, I, I'm the one that should have been broken. I'm the one that deserved to die because of my own sin. But you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for my sin, the true bread itself, so that I somehow might be able to live, and I'm going to cling to that bread that came from heaven. So that first point, Jesus is the bread. Uh, the second point is simply the, the bread itself is life, and life as we really want it. So if Jesus is the bread, and the bread happens to be life, then we ask the question, how is it, what kind of life is Jesus talking about here? If the bread is life, what kind of life is he talking about? And uh, the New Testament was originally 
uh, written in what we call Koine Greek. And the Greek language has a couple of different words for life. One word would be bios, biological life. We all understand what biological life is because we've experienced it. But there's another word called zoe. Zoe uh, means quality of life. Uh, let me illustrate just the difference in a kind of a little family illustration here. Uh, back uh, about 35 years ago, Suzanne and I were living in Houston, and we decided to take our family on a trip back to Ottawa, Canada, where we had a four-year ministry there to see some friends and family members, or friends and spiritual family members, and uh, visit the church again. It was a Kind of our vacation. At the time, we only had three kids. Our fourth one wasn't born yet. They were one, three, and five. And we put them on a plane, and we headed north to Ottawa. Now, when we got on the plane, I was sitting next to our somewhat precocious five-year-old. And he was sitting there, and almost immediately, before the plane even left the ground, a flight attendant brought him a little glass of 7-Up and a little bag of peanuts. And he ate the peanuts and he drank the 7-Up. And without even being asked, you know, a little while later, she brought him another little bag of peanuts and another 7-Up. And he nibbled on the peanuts again and was sipping the 7-Up. And then he pushed his chair back and he looked at me and he says, Dad, this is really living. <laughs> really living. My goodness. And when he said that, he didn't mean that a moment ago that he was dead. When he said that, he was meant, man, I, I, this, is, this is real enjoyable living. Uh, you know, this is, this is true Zoe. This is the... The, the joy that comes from Zoe, quality of life. Now, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it doesn't mean that the life we live on earth just goes on forever. Uh, hell is eternal existence without Zoe, without quality of life. Heaven is eternal Zoe and quality of life with meaning, with energy, and with exhilaration. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. And the implication here is that we're all searching. Every one of us are searching for what might be ultimate life or what we consider to be ultimate life. And we all have something of a vision, at least in our mind, what life on earth would really be like if it were totally joyful. You know, back then, my son, you know, said the ultimate in life is just somebody bringing him 7-Up and peanuts as often as he wants that kind of stuff. That was his idea at that particular time as a five-year-old of real quality of life. Now, adults would laugh, and we did laugh at that kind of naivete. But think about it. God laughs at us when, we, when he contemplates what we think real life is like. 
He says, ah, you just don't know yet. You just don't know. And Jesus says, unless you find your ultimate life in me, everything for which you are living is going to be found wanting. It's going to spoil. And so Jesus came to bring us quality of life. And it's, you know, but if if we don't embrace him, uh, then we head in the other direction. And this is really illustrated in the, the words, the despairing words of Bertrand Russell. He was a British intellectual, lived around 70 years ago, and he wrote a book entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. It's still in my library. I've read it a couple of times over the years. But listen to what he says, and this is a high-end intellectual individual. Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his hopes, his growth, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collection of atoms. There's no life, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling that can preserve an individual beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Now, if you don't seek refuge in the true life of Jesus Christ in us, then invariably... We're going to uh, engage in false, a false life by thinking that life is nothing more than all of the junk that we acquire under one mortgage. We're enslaved by stuff today that we don't even want anymore. And all of that stuff at times suppresses our ability to perceive reality. Now the spirit comes along And he stimulates our ability to see. Here is the truth of the the God of the universe. Here's the truth. The God of the universe has become a person. He's come to earth, put on our flesh, and died for you. He's taken away the judgments of all the liens against your soul. And all the failures have been paid up by Jesus Christ. So if we make Christ the the bread of life, uh, the true bread of life, if we make him uh, our source of joy, then he'll come to us with light and with power. And our conscience will be cleared. Uh, We'll be adopted into his family. We'll have a new community of sure hope even in the midst of hardship and suffering. And the beauty of Christ's character will be set loose in your life and in my life as well. Jesus never says, find your own Zoe and meaning in life. He never says, discover who you are, do your own thing. Whatever two consenting adults agree upon is fine. Jesus says, listen, labor not for the food that spoils. So Jesus is the bread, and when that bread is taken in by you and by me, it leads to a quality of life 
lived in the context of reality. So don't contract. The exhortation, the takeaway, don't contract your living experience by refusing to worship the only person in all of the universe that is greater than you are. See, Christianity is intellectual, but it's so much more. It's mystical at times, but it is so much more. Christianity is all a all about the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came down in order to give us what we desired and what we needed more than anything else. And so if we dismiss belief in a personal God, invariably the world becomes impersonal. You know, the late uh, B.F. Skinner, he was the Harvard behaviorist, uh, he would be right if there were no God. And he would say, we're nothing but sophisticated machines without freedom, without dignity, without personality, and without soul. You know, and anybody that majored in psychology knows about B.F. Skinner and his behavioristic theories and those kinds of things. But he was wrong, and the reason he was wrong was because he didn't have an answer for the deepest and most profound questions that you and I have about life. Why does everyone consider that love is the ultimate reality and really gives meaning to life? Why is there no greater pain in your life and in my life than loneliness? Why does every molecule in our body crave relationship? Why does the idea of an impersonal God sound absolutely unbearable and unthinkable? And the answer is is because God is not impersonal. Love exists here on earth because a God of love created the earth and gave us a thirst for love. And then God quenches that thirst by giving us himself, who is the bread of life. And at times everybody is a little bit skeptical and maybe you're a little skeptical sometimes and certainly you have friends that are skeptical, but... If you're skeptical, why not bring a fallen mind into accord of what every molecule in your body already knows is true? And that is Jesus' love. He has shed his love abroad in the deadest of hearts and inflamed them with Zoe, quality of life. He came not to just give us biological life. He came to give us quality of life. And it's bound up in the relationship that we have with his son. And so whenever you you start saying, I need to get spiritual, it's always going to be focused on the person, the person of Christ. He has done this unbelievable act for me so that somehow I can have eternal life in his presence of real Zoe. And if you ever think that Christianity gets stale, when you think that it gets stale, and I'm just tired of listening to all of this, you need to go back to the person of what he did and who he, and who he was and what he did and the very fact that we have a living hope. We all go through discouragements. If you're married, you go through discouragements. If you're single, you go through discouragements. We always have dips in our own life. But the one thing that remains constant is the person of Jesus Christ and what our future holds because we're related to him. 
Jesus said, you know what? I am the bread, and that bread for you is life. And it's not, it's eternal life, but it begins right here. And if we can keep those two things in perspective, we've got a chance to overcome the discouragements in those present trials that continue to, to, we continue to deal with all the time. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for uh, who you are and who you do, uh, what you have done as we journey through the Gospel of John, we get all kinds of uh, glimpses and uh, from different uh, directions, uh, different descriptions, but uh, putting them all together, uh, the manifold presence of uh, you in our lives is really the key. And uh, Father, I pray for myself as I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room and uh, outside in the rooms adjacent to us that uh, the person of Jesus and the treasure that he is and the consistency with which you stay with us and uh, the promise of a true home going someday, <coughs> Lord, that is our, our hope and it's based upon fact and uh, therefore we don't have to live in fear and what a privilege that is. Help us to be loving to all, O Lord. Help us to show something of the presence of Christ in the lives of people that we meet and love. In the name of our Lord, amen.